Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey, and award-winning designer, Francis O'Connor. In this recording, Francis talks with me about the subtlety involved in sketching a visual language onto the broad blank canvas of the Abbey stage. We talk about his work on the Country Girls, what his job entails, what it doesn't. Francis talks about following the instinct of an idea to articulate a beautifully lit vision of clarity, vivid neutrality, and the theatrical value of an object. Francis goes on to talk about the ritual and rust of Godot, those ephemeral moments of design-led magic that remain with you, and the balletic beauty of those magnificent men and their flying machines. Enjoy this podcast. Francis O'Connor, it is the morning of the last preview of The Country Girls. You had a gap day yesterday, which sounds like a day off, but it's, it's nothing like that. Where is your head at this morning? Um, my head is in a good place this morning because I think we learned a lot. We had a very good first preview and then we took a little bit of a slip on the second preview. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, I think. And, and what it did is it, is it taught us actually more about what works and what isn't working in the show. So I think um, yesterday on our, this gap day, which is actually, like you say, is not a gap day at all. It's a putting back together and building a better show day, really, is, um, you know, I think we had a really positive day yesterday. We didn't get anywhere near what we wanted to complete, completed, but it was very positive and we made some new stuff, which is quite exciting and I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out in the preview this evening. When you talk about, um, say, a slip of one of the previews, are you reading, are you listening to what, how an audience reacts to it or is it your eye? It's partly... It, you've really got to follow your own instinct, I think. You can read an audience to a certain extent, but an audience is made up of lots of individuals who are all going to have their own opinion about what works and doesn't work, and you have to be true to your own instinct as creative artists, and you've got to follow your those instincts. Obviously be led and listen and understand what an audience is feeling in the, kind of, um, the narrative journey of the piece, but in terms of the um, aesthetic and choices of staging that one makes I think you have to be committed to those as create you know as creative people when you when you speak of instincts will you tell me about your process of bringing the pages of this text to the stage and where and how it all begins for you well it always you know naturally it always begins with reading the the play I, I read a few different drafts of this play because I've had quite a long association with it over over the years and the it's it's quite unlike other plays actually um, because it is sort of episodic but it has a wholeness so what's been interesting is finding the page on you know finding the visual language in which to tell quite a broad narrative but in a in a way that doesn't feel episodic that allows the scenes to kind of meld and mesh with one another so it becomes a whole rather than a series of short scenes and I, I think that's what's been the both the challenge and actually the thing that's made it most interesting to do you know because um, 
the, the challenges that presents, the solutions you have to find to make that narrative happen, create, you know, interesting bits of theatre, one hopes. <laughs> when you talk about, I suppose, those episodes and not, I suppose, having them like that, played out like that, you, you read the script and you've read many versions of the script. I, because this play has been written and adapted for the stage by Edna O'Brien, mm. so she's the author of the novel, and mm. then that novel has been distilled down to a play text. Mm. And then your job, I suppose, is to distill that play text, to distill it down into a very simple truth. Mm. And yet your job is also to, because it, it's a very bare-bone storytelling out there, but it's your job to add flesh to those bones without too much padding. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is, but uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, it, it is to a certain extent. I can add flesh. Can I add flesh to the bones? I don't know whether I can. I, 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 I can. I can certainly make a world, make a space where the story can unfold beautifully and lyrically and clearly. I mean, gosh, I find that a really hard one to answer. Well, it's just, it's interesting for me to watch it because reading all around this, I, I've read Edna's novel and mm. then I've read the, a few versions of the script and then I've read Edna's um, biography as well, The Country Girl. And for me, it's all kind of meshed in together and mm. sometimes it's very hard to separate mm. her real life to the play. Uh, absolutely. And, and Kate's story, sometimes you read it and you think, oh, that's Edna's story. Yeah. And I, I actually never really asked Edna. I don't think she thinks it is her story or maybe there's parts of it naturally are going to be Edna's story. Well, you know, I'm assuming. I have no idea. Um, but certainly the way the play reads, it sort of has... Um, Echoes, you know, Kate's going to go off and write. Although I don't know her biography well enough, so I might be making this up. But um, I mean, what Edna's said, which is interesting, is that she's written a play and it's not the novel. It's, you know, but obviously she says that, but obviously it is informed by the novel and it is the country girls. But we're to view it as a play and not as a staging of the novel. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes, okay. I think she's been pretty clear. I think she's been pretty explicit about that. I hope I'm not putting, you know, my own gloss on it. But certainly that's what I've sort of felt and my understanding is. I mean, it's interesting because I didn't... Re when she said that, I didn't real really read... I have heard the... No I haven't read the novel, actually. I've heard her... She does this fabulous voice. She's done her own recording of it. And I, I played that in the car. I've had that on in the car, um on journeys and things so I'm aware of it and it's just gorgeous listening to her voice because she tells the stories <laughs> beautifully in her own in her own voice um, so I've had that but I, I did that on purpose because I didn't want to read the play the novel in in a way that I'd read the play so I just wanted the the, the novel to be sort of in my head but not be slave to it because actually it's the play that we're making play she's made. When you get a sense of the script um, you, you get a feeling about it. Do you have to sell that vision to your collaborators? It's a very bold design choice for the Country Girl. It's, it's not what I would have thought the Country Girl set would look like. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, there's a beautiful risk to it. It's a beautiful spectacle to watch. But yes, did you have to sell that sparse set to the rest of the team? Well, I d the, the first person I need to do selling to in as much as to talk and, and 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 get excited with my collaborate 
actors about the first the first person is the director and you know I'd not worked with Graham before I mean I knew Graham from other things where he was a producer at NTS and because of the Druid stuff that we've done here you know I knew Graham but I didn't know him as a collaborator as a director collaborator and the great thing about Graham obviously you know is he's a visual vis very visual person because he was a designer so you've instantly your instincts I think when you're working with another person who is a designer as well, is you are going to be perhaps much more open to kind of bolder visual choices. So in a sense, we kind of, it was rather wonderful because we sort of challenged each other to go that little bit further. And I did do a version because what I like to do is, it, it, often I get an idea really quickly after a conversation. So, you know, I'm, I met Graham a couple of times when we talked about the play. And I th after, I think, maybe the second meeting, I said, listen, I've got an idea and I'm going to just mock it up, you know, just so we've got something to talk about you can look at the next time. And so I made a little 1 to 50 maquette of this idea, which is not the idea that's on stage now. But um, it was really useful to do that. Again, it was another quite a bold sort of conceptual notion for the show um, but what it did is having it was a little bit more lyrical in its vision I suppose um, and it what it did is it confirmed as we talk as we looked because we had something to look at because we could look at the model um, it and as we talked through the show it began to feel that it was going to lock us into something wouldn't really have allowed the play to sort of go anywhere else. So having sort of established that, I can't even remember how, I think we were talking about, you know, because it is episodic and it happens in lots of different scenes about, well, we don't want a show that's about shunting on furniture. You know, we don't want Pickford's bringing on furniture every sort of five minutes. So we were trying to think about a way of how to do that. And then we had this kind of eureka moment I can't, and I can't remember when it happened or how it happened but it was I, I think I was thinking about blank sheets of paper and obviously because she's a writer and uh, um, and this sheet of paper that curled at the back upstage that formed a wave because the wave is important because the wave is the beach on where there is a key scene with Mr. Gentleman and Kate. And it just seemed very apt image. I mean, often, you know, as a designer, you just get one image and then you think, okay, that's exciting. How is that going to impact on anything else? So that certainly was one image. So it was this sheet of paper, blank piece of paper. And when we were thinking of blank piece of paper, we were thinking, well, that's kind of rather beautiful image. Um, because on a blank piece of paper you can start sketching ideas, you can start writing down ideas. So then we had this notion of furniture, but furniture that could fly in. So it would only be very small, lim we'd, we'd limit ourselves to a few different objects, but they would appear magically from up above. And almost they're like sketches, when they land on the floor, they're like a sort of sketch of a scene. So. It's a way of three-dimensionally articulating a scene because you've got a chair on stage, but also you can get rid of it really quickly. And then the notion of 
quickly came. Okay, that's kind of rather interesting. So we can create a world where we can make these sketches of scenes and then they accumulate above her head. So once an object has appeared on stage, it then flies out to a kind of mid-stage level. And um, those objects then accumulate as part of her story. So they build up as a kind of collage above her head. And I think that came from, I look back and think, oh, well, what was I looking at at the time? Or what was I thinking? And there's an artist called Cornelia Parker. I don't know if you know her. She's absolutely wonderful artist. One piece that really I'm very, very attached to is this piece, I think it's called Exploded Shed. Well, it is an exploded shed, which is where she accumulated loads and loads of objects and put them in a shed and then put high explosives into the shed and destroyed the shed and then took hundreds of photographs as the shed was exploding and then has taken all the exploded objects and put them into a gallery space, suspended on lines. It's absolutely amazing. It's a, I think it's maybe a Tate Modern sometimes. Um, but that sort of notion is sort of a little bit of what we've got here. So all this, these bits of Kate's story have accumulated above her head and then they leave the space in a kind of, kind of beautiful sort of coup de theatre moment. You know, I'm excited about it, even when I talk about it, because it just seems so apt. It just is a very apt way to visually articulate the story, I think, you know. On that level, I'm really happy and sort of proud of, proud of it. Because it it's a bold way of going, but it doesn't feel, it, it doesn't feel like a conceit. It feels, it, it feels very bedded into the piece. I mean, there's nothing on stage there by accident. When I read the stage, I think it's beautiful because for me, it's like it's it's full of dreams and elements of nightmares as Absolutely. well. And everything is suspended in a time. It's funny, um, my little nephew, when he goes to bed, he's only three and a half. And as you put him to bed, he asks for five things to dream about. And lately, there's an awful lot about glue, I don't know why, and, and a, a transformer dinosaur called um, Grimlock. But I say this because when I watch the play, it's they seem to be all these ingredients of a dream. But as, as I'm getting older, I feel as if my dreams repeat themselves. Uh, it's like that um, Brian Field line um, that you reconvene to reconstruct. And all these things, all these images that are suspended in time in that stage come down. And I feel as if you're drawing from these memory banks all the time. It's it's a kind of, I'm trying to make a space that has a kind of vivid neutrality, if you like, that, that when you put an object or when someone's on the space or an object is on the space, it absolutely speaks, you know, really clearly. So the set, it's, it's quite monochrome, it's, it's largely bl black and white, but it's, it's subtly so. It's not just black and white, it's shades of grey, and in fact what you might think of as a white stage when you get up close, it is, um, it's paper. There is a print over the entire set, which is like scaled paper. So it has the kind of um, warp and weft of a piece of paper in it. But from an audience point of view, you wouldn't really see that. You just see a kind of mellow whiteness. But if we hadn't done that, I mean, I know it's there. If you get up close, you can see it. From a distance, you may not see it, but I know that if it was just white, 
it would have a coldness and a hardness that is we wouldn't have wanted and um it's it's been rather kind of it's very subtle but it it's it and it takes light beautifully and i think that's partly because of this soft finish that the surfaces have and Sinead Wallace who's lit it we've has been i've never worked with Sinead before this was the first time and she's just like we've hit really hit it off i mean she's done the most remarkable job and it's sometimes hard to see where lighting the lighting starts and the set finish you know like that it's so completely um symbiotic symbiotic and that's been a kind of beautiful thing working with her to sort of find that language i mean it's you know there's always in a in a show where you're working with new people that is kind of exciting but that relationship i mean she's just wonderful and i couldn't be happier with what she's made of the design it's more than i ever imagined um in terms of how it can light and how she's articulated the space with light i mean it's it's interesting because the set's made a little bit of a journey i mean as often happens during rehearsal and even in the last few days when when the set arrived into the theater there was no it was literally bank blank walls everywhere so and that was the intention and these pieces were going to arrive into it and actually I think on the first or second day, we thought there, there was there was lines at the beginning of the play about lilacs in the in the garden that were going to be brought into the house, and so I suddenly thought, oh, why have you just got one lilac on stage? Let's lay a little kind of ray, a little art installation of lilacs down the front of the stage, and it was partly oh that's right, it was, it was partly driven by the fact that the black that hides the set at the top of the show left a section of white floor downstage that I found really irritating because it felt like because we weren't originally going to have a black we were just going to have the set the audience would have walked in to see the white box but we added this black in so they didn't see the white box at the start and there's a rather beautiful opening sequence that takes ages for the set to reveal itself um but I didn't like this, the fact that the audience coming in saw this white strip because it just to me looked like an unconsidered, because it was unconsidered, I hadn't planned for that to happen. And so I think I was thinking, oh, damn, what am I going to do this? So we put this line of lilacs, which is referred to, and it, it, it played, the first scene played really well with them being there. And then we were using them, uh, Kate picks them up at various points throughout the show. So it, it, and, and we light it in a special at the top of the show. So they have some import and value. And then I think it was um, Edna saw it and thought, oh, it should be more, there should be more down there. There should be more earth and more shells because of the beach. Because at, at one point we were going to have shells down there. And it, it, it just, you know, in this time, we just never got around to doing, doing it. And then when she said that, I thought, okay, you know, and she was talking about earth, and I thought, well, don't really, it's going to be hard to put earth onto this set because it'll just, it's a, it's a white set, and it will get really dirty very quickly, and it won't, and it didn't feel right. But then I found this black sand, which is both earth and sand, which is great, because it tells both the stress, and there's something about the quality of the black sand that looks a little bit like ink when it's on a page. But we've now got this kind of beach downstage, just the downstage front meter that has this kind of shoreline of black sand 
into which are planted shells and lilacs. Not planted, but just sort of laying across there. And it's quite a sort of poetic image, and now it's being used. The, the actors use it in symbolic ways in the show now. I was going to ask you how, when, you know, you've been living with this idea for so long and then you, you bring it to life on stage and you go through tech and preview and I was wondering if your vision does change and because I've seen the edges soften mm. as this has been on its feet. I'm quite happy with that because I had this, like I said, like the first idea was a much more lyrical idea that I had. And somehow, I mean, this isn't lyrical. Well, I when suppose it's got lyrical, a little bit. When you say lyrical, Francis. Poetic. Uh, mm. But I don't mean romantic. I don't know. Lyrical. Romantic, I suppose. The set isn't romantic at all. It's poetic. It's not romantic. This softened edge, it's still not romantic necessarily. It's quite... You could read it on lots of different levels. You could read it as ash. You could read it as sand. You could read it as earth. But you could read it as ink. It does give another quality to the space that feels absolutely right and actually doesn't feel like an add-on. It feels like it should have been there from the beginning. And perhaps it should, but I didn't realise until I put it there that it should be there. And that's, that. you know, often when you're on stage... I mean, this happens to me quite a lot. When I'm on stage, it's how I'll often see things, moments that, with an actor that does, who might do something on stage, and then I think, oh my God, that can impact directly the, the, the design. And so I might change things or change the colour of things or adjust things in order to bring out something. So there's, for example, there's lots of, all of the set is black and white and the design is black and white and shades of grey, that there are little articulations of colour that have pop up and those colours are quite strong, have a narrative point to them. They're all from the novel and from the play, certainly. You know, it's not just monotone, there are little little jewels of colour. If I was to ask you for a word that described the feeling of this play or the feeling that you had when you started because you, it feels as if you are very reactive as, as you're going through this show as well and you're, you're listening and watching actors and there seems to be a very um, tangible sense about how you work. It, it's interesting because I am a, you know, like I suppose I'm a visual artist to a large extent, but I'm also, I, I studied drama for two years, so I am very, I'm very much into how an actor works a space and how a director works a space and that I'm not just interested in how it looks I'm interested in how it performs Do you know it's not just what it looks like it's how the sh how the space performs well is there always going to be that conflict of like an aesthetic value and then the technical value of, of what it has to do what it has to, you know the challenges that uh, that you have to make happen so there's there's kind of beauty versus the the function. Yeah. I mean, well, this one is an interesting one because you, the biggest single investment in the show has been the flying because we could never fly this show the way that we've done it on a regular flying system. It's, we'd never be able to get the articulation of movement with people up in the, up in the gallery on hemp sets or lines 
putting things in and out. It just would never have worked. And so early on, once we'd established this sort of concept, part of the reason why the rest of the staging, I suppose, is quite modest is because we've, we've put a lot of, we've placed a lot of value, you know, we've spent a lot of money upstairs <laughs> to try and, which the audience don't see. Um, in terms of they don't see the fact that there are ten motors whirling like mad behind the stage making what is an incredibly sen sensitive and modest looking design work but it only works because of the it works be to a certain extent because of the technology behind it that's allowing for these very fluid moments please God. I suppose that's where the sort of creative vision meets pragmatic reality and and also you know because the show is going to go on tour so it's and we haven't got time in every venue to re-educate a crew on the complicated flying although it's incredibly simple as you look at it we haven't got the time to do that and I, I really applaud Andy Keogh, who's the production manager on the show, because he was the one who was adamant that it had to be something like this in order to work on tour. And I think he was, he was absolutely right to do that. Do you have to temper your patience? I mean, I, I certainly, you talk about, uh, you know, an audience, whether they would appreciate it, I think they will. Uh, I think in that opening scene, was there a temptation to reveal reveal it all so quickly? You had to. I'm sure you had to kind of oh, hold back. Absolutely, no. You don't want to do everything. You don't want to reveal all the tricks in one go. You you do get a, the completion of the of the image at the end. It is rather beautiful. It, it swells to such a, a beautiful ending, and it's it is kind of like um, a symphony, you know, happening yeah. all at the same. It's yeah. There is a. It is like there's a symphony at the end, and then it's a single breath after it, and that's really what's been written. But it's. I think that's what we've managed to. Well, I mean, we'll be told. <laughs> I think that's what we've tried, and, and I think, you know, we feel we've managed to convey. Theatre is a space of imagination. Do you have to reinvent yourself and reinvent your style, if you have a style, uh, with every production? I mean, it's re that's a really interesting one, because I, for years I thought I never had a style. Like, for years and years, I, I thought my USP... <laughs> And my, both my USP and my Achilles heel is that I didn't have a style. Like I could, uh, I love minimalism, like this I suppose. I also love good old fashioned scenery. I love spectacle. I love, you know, all of those different things that, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a great job this one, you know, to be a designer because you can, you, you create an image in your studio and then you've got a whole tribe of people who come in and invest their talents in realising it. And um, it's, it's, it's rather kind of joyous. I mean, it's an incredibly joyous uh, career choice. I'm very lucky to do it. Um, 
but yeah, for you, for years, I thought oh, I didn't have a style, and then people say, "But you do," you know. Like I've had, I've had different interviews in the past, and I've said that, and then they say, "But you do," and then they point out things, and I think, "Oh, actually, yeah, maybe, maybe I do, but I'm not conscious of it." But I certainly know that in terms of the way that I view a show, I do view each show separately, and I don't intend coming in and putting. Francis would have kind of sort of print on it because I wouldn't even know what that was because until I've until I've read it and decide and, and worked with the rest of the creative team on what it might be you know like how, who am I to come along and say well it, it should be in a big white box with a you know like it that's all part of the journey that's part of the journey but I do there are certainly themes and ideas and visual probably visual things that I I re reapply <laughs> I'm certainly not going to apply anything um, you know any of my opinions to your style I but what just occurs to me as you're speaking there um, it feels just say on this show and the previous one you had here Gatto it feels as if you uh, you take a really tiny detail and you blow it up um, I'm thinking of the tree in Gatto and, yeah. and, and it's rusty nails and, and then the texture of the paper here. Yeah. I mean, I, I do believe I do believe you have to find a something in the piece. You, you have to like with Gatto, for example, I mean, that, that's an interesting one. I'm trying to think about how to articulate it. You do have to find a kind of truth to things on stage. And so, for example, with Godot, the tree, this is a good illustration. I couldn't imagine in Godot putting, digging up a tree and planting it on stage. It would just seem pointless. I couldn't imagine fashioning a fake tree. It would seem pointless because none of it is, I mean, it is illusion and Godot is theatre but it just did, felt dishonest so then you start to think well okay what is the tree how can I make that tree and make it feel um, not like a fake tree this sounds so as I'm saying it, it sounds so naff but so then it makes you kind of explore okay what is that and you know when you read the play and I've read the play a few times and you know talking to Gary about it and then it really was a eureka moment thinking oh my god it should be made of nails because there's allusions to the cross there um, which are, are very clear I had this image in my head of a pile of nails the way that that can look like bark is really what I was thinking and so I, um, I drew a, this tree, which was basically made of boat nails and made a little maquette of it. And then um, we made it. And it was a beautiful, and it, it is a wonderful object. And it's amazing how many people didn't recognize that it was made of nails. For people who come to see the show, it's a tree. It's a kind of beautiful, weird, enigmatic, strange tree. But no one questions the fact that it's a tree. But I reckon probably maybe half, only half the audience, maybe less than half the audience, realised it was made of nails. Um, 
but it, it was made of six inch boat nails and there was a beautiful ritual to making it because we could only get galvanized boat nails and I wanted it to be a rusted tree. Um, obviously boat nails are galvanized because they have to withstand um, the sea so and salt and all of that lot. So um, Bill Wright who made it had to burn the he basically lit a massive fire, burnt the nails in a fire for a f quite a few hours to get all the galvanized, really hot temperature, to get the galvanized off. And then they were le the nails were left out for a couple of weeks to rust naturally. Then he welded the thing together. So there was a rather, I've got photos of it, it's a really wonderful sort of process. You know, there's a um, an earthy spiritual aspect, I suppose, ritual aspect of building it that I thought was really exciting and actually sort of finds expression in the object, you know, when it gets on stage. I mean, again, it's that thing when I was saying earlier on about, you know, how lucky, what a lucky job this is because, you know, Bill did an absolutely beautiful job of building that, you know, making it. You know, I'm sat here now in your little room, looking at the stage, and I can see Ema <laughs> busy making the Virgin Mary stars sparkle more beautifully. I mean, it's just great that people are working so hard to make my sketches and musings and wishes real. I mean, how lucky am I? Can I ask you, I'll, I'll wrap up here with a couple of questions. Um, can I ask you about your instincts on that first play you designed versus the instincts that you have now? Do you, do you have a touchstone? You mentioned, like, I suppose, the truth of the piece. Mm. Do you have a touchstone that you just go back to? Are your instincts the same? Can I clarify the question a little bit? I suppose I'm thinking about you've evolved, you've developed over the decades that you've worked in this industry. Do you revert back to something that tells you that you're on the right path? the choice of design? I think I know when I've done something that really works. Oh, that's a, such a hard question. I suppose when you approached that first show yeah. that you were asked to design. For th this one? No, not oh. for this one, sorry, your very first show. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Which is what, back in the 90s, from I the suspect? 80s. 80s. Yeah. But what am I asking you? I I'll tell you I'm what it is. I tell you. I tell where you. Where you go to? I tell you what you go to, and it's. I think this is interesting. It's. This, it's definitely the case with me. I think because I came at this. Um, when I started out, I didn't want to necessarily be a designer. I did a lot of youth theatre in my past, and I did drama for two years because I thought I wanted to. Act. I mean, I didn't even know you could be a. I didn't even know designers existed. I mean, there was. I didn't have much theatre growing up. There wasn't a lot going on. There was a lot of amateur theatre, but there wasn't much professional theatre happening. So I, I didn't, I did youth theatre, but I didn't really know what the jobs were. So I didn't know there were designers up until I was sort of 17, 16, 17. I didn't know, I knew there was somebody who made the sets um, at the local theatre, but I didn't really know it was a job. But like I say, I came from it from a drama point of view when I was a kid. So I did, I did that for two years up until I was sort of, so that would be 19, 18, 19. And then I, after studying dr the drama thing, I did 
I, I decided I didn't want to act because I wasn't that good at it. And I knew my limits. Um, and I did want to make a career. <laughs> um, but while I was at college doing drama, I designed all the shows because no one was interested in doing it. You know, like, so uh, even though I was studying drama, I was effectively doing design. And then I went to Wimbledon School of Art to do a drama, uh, to do a design course. And I spent the first two years of my course at Wimbledon acting and directing plays um, because the way they, it was really rather wonderful. There was a marvellous um, uh, head of the course called Richard Negri, who was my tutor, and he, he was a designer, but he was also a director, and he, he made the um, Royal Exchange in Manchester, and um, he was a very, very important sort of guru-like figure in the sort of 60s and 70s. And he, he was a wonderful tutor, but he really believed in finding truth in the space, finding how an actor would sit, stand, function in the space, and how an object in that space, what theatrical value it had. This, I mean, I know this all sounds a bit kind of nonsense as I'm saying it, but I, I think for me, it ought, and I can remember we did a lot of exercises about objects, like finding things that could speak to us that had some energy about them, um, and then putting them on a space and re-articulating them in different ways. And what he was trying to do was trying to teach us the importance of the theatrical, yeah, I suppose the theatrical value and theatrical truth of what you're putting on stage as a designer but also what you're putting on stage as an actor. So I think that to me has always been important, to, to try and make it serve the piece truthfully, beautifully, and with utter clarity. That's what I'm trying to do. Does that make sense? It does, it does. And as you speak, um, I'm also aware that I haven't asked you I haven't asked you about costume design and I wondered how the costume design speaks to the set that will speak to the audience yeah. um, because as I watch the show I notice that it is it, it, visually it does look black and white but when I even look at the costumes there are yes there are flashes of color but mm. then there are softened the softened yeah. the softened grayer tones and blue gray tones in it yes that that um I mean the it tells so much it. about the character. Yeah, yeah. They're the, 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 the subtle things. But in as much as there's an economy, you know, the cast are playing multiple roles as well. But we didn't want it to turn into where people had to go off and were doing complete costume changes. So they're kind of gestures when they come on. But they do look like different people. But you also believe, you know, they're actors, for God's sake. They can speak differently. They can present their posture in a different way. They can be different people. There's a transformation. Without having, yeah. There's a transformation to the actor that doesn't have to be piling a whole load of costume on them. And sometimes with an actor, it's telling them, listen, you don't need a whole load of costume. You don't need to be wearing spectacles. You don't need a wig. You don't need a... You know, like, it, they they can do it. And and without, without me dressing it up too much. Um, and... And so we've tried to be as economical in that department and as spare in that department. And again, just subtly intimate things. I mean, that's been quite interesting because people are on and off all the time and they've got to express journeys 
in well Kate for example who never leaves the stage I mean she's off probably in the entire hour and 40 minutes she's off possibly for 40 seconds so you know somehow she has to um, age you know she turns from a girl into a woman but I can only do that within the context of her being you know so that's been being on stage the whole time so that's been quite interesting it does work but it's been interesting um, to to do that and some of that tonal journey can only really be made while we've been on stage although we have had some of the costumes in rehearsal we don't have the whole picture in front of us I mean what's interesting is when you're on stage is sometimes we make a change and then I'll go back and say listen that was a mistake because it's impacted on this it's a it's a balancing act in terms of you know juggling all that kind of detail too can I ask you, when I leave a show, um, uh, from you know from shows that I've seen from years ago, there's images that stay with me. Um, mm. I hadn't realised that you had designed uh, Terry Flynn, oh, yeah. and I just yeah. I remember seeing that twenty something years ago, yeah. and just the le the the layers and levels involved. I'd never seen anything like it, and um, there was there was a. Headlights on the stage, and there was Steve Blount as the horse, um, mm. and there was uh, the f uh, car the driving along the yes, thing, somebody yeah, walking and, up and the bicycles, wall. you bicycles know, going by yeah, in yeah. twos and threes, and yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have the the Gado tree, and and this it's it's all these elements of of dreams and nightmares for me, and I wonder for you from your own work, is there an image that stays with you from your own work, and then maybe is there an image from uh, a, a play of someone else's. So just images that stay with you from. Production. Oh, there are definitely images that stay with me from other people's work, and and sort of from my own. Um, and sometimes they're like really simple, simple things. I felt mostly they're really simple things. Um, but uh, from 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 other people's work, like I remember seeing. Years ago, at the Schaubühne in Germany, I saw this play, Roberto Zucco, and it had the most extraordinary design. I mean, you know, like, the, this was when the Schaubühne would spend six months rehearsing a play and then only put it on if they thought it was good enough. You know, so the production value is everything, utterly exceptional. Um, and there was a wonderful moment at the end of that play where a guy, uh, Roberto Zucco, who's this murderer, basically, who's in prison, and he throws himself off a... He talks about throwing himself in, into the sun, basically. And they had this massive light upstage that came right downstage of the... I mean, it was quite a spectacular moment. This is, you know, when I say about modest things and then big things, this is a big effect. Um, and the actor hurled himself. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> he hurled himself at this massive light that was coming towards him from from upstage and grasped onto it health and safety didn't play any part in this I don't know how they got away with it so he grasped onto this massive light like a big old theatrical 5k it looked like but on a human scale he held onto it and then the whole light rotated so he was spinning on this light and it came over the audience and it took your breath away. I mean, the audacity of it and the kind of craziness of it. It was the most stupendous theatrical coup I've ever seen in my life. That's one of them that stays with me. 
But then there are other things, like little things I can remember. Like in my own work, I did Big Maggie here with Gary Hines quite a long time ago, and Marie Mullen was in it. And I can remember there was a bit at the end of the play when the daughter is the last person in the shop and she left her mother and the daughter had these blue gloves, I think they were blue or maybe pink gloves on um, and she left them on the counter. They were just woolen gloves that were left on the counter and it was the last, you knew that that was the last of her children who was going to ever be in that shop with her. And the set was actually blue-grays. It was very monotone. So this, these pink gloves, I think they were pink gloves that were left on the table, were like a beacon. You know, like they were just there. And then the whole set sort of pulled back and the um, the counter went into the floor. And the last image was on stage with these, with these gloves. Just That was really beautiful image. That was very simple. And then I can remember the other image that comes to mind, since you've asked, is um, I did a play called The Good Father with Aidan, who was in this, and Dove Lacrotti. And there was a bit that happened on a beach. And I've sort of flirted with the idea of, can I get it in here? But I'm not going to, because it's, it's, I don't want to repeat myself. And it was so apt in The Good Father. It was a Christian O'Reilly play um, in, the, in the Mick Lally space. And we needed to conjure a beach, and I was trying to think, how the hell are we going to do it? And we had lapping waves and the whole thing, the whole shebang. And it was fine, but it was such an intimate little play between the two of them, this husband and wife. And Dervla took her sandal off in it, and she poured sand out of the sandal. Like, just like you would on a beach, you know, like after you've been on a beach. But it was a beautiful, be beautiful moment, and so simple. So, so Actually, it's those moments that stick with me. And can I tell you another one? Now you've asked me, I keep remembering these things. I did a show called Crestfall Marco Row Play at the gate of quite a few years ago. And we had, the set was just a, a lot of, quite a lot of shattered mirror and a black floor, glossy black floor. And there was a tiny section of the glossy black floor which you would never have seen as an audience member. It would just look like part of the floor. And in it was a little plastic figurine of a, of a child's toy which one of the characters talked about this child's toy, I think, or was talking about a child or reflecting on something. It was Eileen Walsh, actually, um, was playing the role. And it was really towards the end of the play, so you just thought, it's just this wall. And I can remember she took her hand and she plunged her hand into this black water and she pulled out this toy, child's toy. Now, it was the simplest image but it was that was a design-led image. It was utterly in the moment, beautifully articulated, directed really beautifully in that moment. And then that had I know that that had a poetic resonance for me, and I know it did for other people because people remind me of it. You know, like when I meet people who'd seen that show, and in fact the gloves thing that I was talking about was uh, somebody reminded me of that. So these things do. Uh, remain. It's those. It, it is, as you say, it's the the most simple things that are extraordinary. Um, yeah. And and also that you don't. You allow the viewer, the audience member, to find that for themselves. You know, you don't. Um, 
you don't hugely magnify it. It's not so obvious, as you say, mm. uh, as an audience member, just finding those intricacies and going and, and, and interpreting it. Um, yeah, there's something very uh, liberating in that as an audience member, not to be patronized either. Mm. Mm. I think you've answered this already, but just to finish off, what keeps you in the job? What keeps you designing? It's the variety of work. Like I do lots of different stuff. So I do plays and I do musicals and I do opera. It's the variety of work. But it's the fact that I can, I get to play with lots of really f interesting people on putting interesting work together. It's the fact that I can make worlds and then other people make them with me. And it's it's that luxurious, joyous... I mean, it's hard work sometimes, but it, look, it's relative. It's not really. It, it is an incredibly um, special profession. I think just because it's the one where, in theatre, it's the one... OK, we're all, you know, we talk about all being collaborators with one another, and that's true. But I think design is the one thing where you've got lots of different technicians who are bringing their skills, their enthusiasms, their ideas to the, the table. And I'm so reliant on their skills and talents to articulate my vision. So it's that. It's that joy. <laughs> this is O'Connor. Thank you very much for giving me your time this morning. I shall let you get back to work. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Francis.